you're talking about federal government bankruptcy, you're talking about corporate bankruptcies, you're talking about really bankruptcies on a global scale, which is truly an absolute reset, right? everyone. Chris Martinson here of Peak Financial Investing, also Peak Prosperity, here back with another episode of Finance University. Paul, Paul Kiker of Kiker Wealth Management, so good to be back here with you today. Good morning, Chris. It is a pleasure. I always look forward to it. Me too, me too. Um, uh, you know, people are, are, are really responding and saying they like these series, they, they like to learn, and there's so much to discuss. And I think we're about to enter a really troubling period of financial disruptions is, is the kindest I could put it. We could be facing a crash. I don't, so here's the setup. Things were really crazy in 1995. So the Fed jumped in, right? And they did this thing, which enabled um, banks to go to effectively 0% um, reserve requirements. And then we had this whole thing called the internet craze, right? Dot bombs, you know, it was all about eyeballs, pets.com, long-term capital management, bailout, bailout, crash, right? But then... Ben Bernanke comes in, bailout, bailout, housing bubble, crash. And then from 2009 to 2019, it was just one bailout after another. You know, there were these little hiccups in 2011, 13, 15, 17, like every couple of years. And the Fed would ride in because, you know, you it, relationship goals. You want to find somebody who loves you as much as the Fed loves the stock market. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That would be the perfect spouse. There's no doubt about yeah. that. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so it's it, but it was just it was clear. They they kept saying, "Oh, dual mandate, full employment, stable prices." Like, no. Every time the stock market wiggles, they would ride in, right? But 2019, things are going wonky, really yes. wonky. We had the repo market blowout. Overnight rates were going. I know this is wonky plumbing. Most people don't care, but it was really important because it showed that something wasn't good down there. And the Fed started printing money again, and then oh, COVID. And they got to double their balance sheet. That was four and a half trillion dollars of new money that was just powered into the markets. And everything went a little crazy as a result. We have inflation now. People can't afford Big Mac, you know, uh, restaurant meals with their family anymore. Why? Because of the Fed printing to bail out Wall Street, who needed a bailout from the bailout that was to bail out the prior bailout, which was a smaller bailout. And that's the story. It's just larger and larger shenanigans all to try and keep this can in the road as they kick it down but they never had a plan paul that's my yeah. view they never really had a plan to say then we'll undo this when what you know uh <laughs> right it just never came so here we are and i think we're seeing signs now that things aren't okay and i want to talk about those today because i think people and their portfolios they should be ready for this correct correct you know, and, and, and as far as the baby boomers, for the baby boomers, they've approached retirement and come into retirement with this just do whatever it takes. You know, we're going to bail the markets out at any expense. And they've become complacent. Uh, Wall Street has become complacent. If you're a money manager who's actually a, a tried to apply wisdom to your process, mm -hmm. It's not work because, you know, all the financial media talks about is the benchmark, the benchmark, the benchmark, the benchmark. And, you know, and people, 
what I'm seeing for the average individuals who aren't working with someone who takes the time to go through a plan, talk to them about the strengths and weaknesses, is they don't have proper asset allocation and they're chasing the S&P 500, they're overweight the S&P 500 because for 10 years now, no other category has, has provided any returns. So let me share mm -hmm. the screen here. Let me make sure I've got it just to kind of now, uh, reference One that. small correction, Paul, is it the S&P 500 or is it the S&P 7? The S&P 7, uh, specifically, <laughs> lately, the S&P 7. <laughs> um, well, it doesn't show my window here. Let me see. Um, because, you know, um, while you're finding that, you know, the most recent charts I've seen show that 493 companies in the S&P 500 have earnings erosions of double digit. And so normally when you have that, you have some sort of a recession in the stock market, but you don't right now. You have actually all-time new highs at the time of this taping. Yes. And what is taping? Kids today won't even know. What do you mean taping? What is a tape, right? <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Well, and, and another analogy while we're pulling this up, can you see the... Yeah, I sure can. Program? I can see that now. So... but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, normally you'd have an earnings recession, but we're at all-time new highs, and that's really just because of, of the Magnificent Seven, the Nifty Seven, you know, to harken back right. to the Nifty 50. So that's yeah, right. take us through this chart. What, what are you seeing here? So what this is, is this is just your major investing classes going back to January 1st, 1998. So the black is the S&P 500 index. Mm -hmm. uh, the blue is the Commodities Index. That's the GNX, the Goldman Commodities Index, which is 8% below uh, overall, what it was January 1st of 2008. Wow. The red is the MSC Developed Markets Index, um, MS, uh, EAFE. So that's about 1.1% below what it was January, January 1st of 2008. And then you've got the Emerging Market Index, which has just been absolutely decimated. Now, you know, for the, for the investors who recognize this distortion in the overall market, you know, from that bottom in 2020 at COVID, you had a nice little surge that occurred in commodities as the market started mm -hmm. to sell off. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're back to this Pavlov's dog where, you know, Magnificent Seven has pretty much uh, uh, carried this entire rally from this point forward. And there's a lot of weakness under the surface. So, you know, one analogy that I like to use, uh, Chris, to kind of share is mm -hmm. let's say we're going to battle. Okay, we're, we're a part of an army in a battle and you've got the generals. So there's no doubt that the Magnificent Seven is, uh, are the generals. That's what everybody's paying attention to. You know, big investors and institutions are forced in there because their benchmark is the S&P 500 and they have to be allocated to that. So at this point, what we're seeing is the other 493 stocks, let's consider those as the infantrymen, right? So we're on the front lines, we're fighting. And all of a sudden, the generals realize they're the only ones on the front line fighting, and the infantrymen, everybody else, has exited the battlefield. Well, it's highly unlikely you're going to win that battle. So, you know, we're starting right now to see under the surface in the NASDAQ 100 some deterioration and some weakness. Uh, in the Magnificent Seven, Tesla is starting to deviate from, uh, from the performance of the rest. Of course, uh, this morning there's a – go ahead. And uh, a point on that, which I want to make, which is that the blush is well and truly off of the EV rose in this story. Everybody like, oh, electric cars, electric cars. Remember the narrative for a while, which is like, oh, you 
you're not buying a Tesla, you're buying a future self-driving car that's a capital investment that's going to make its own money back because you can just send it out to pick people up and drive them around. That was the story. Obviously, self-driving was more complicated than that. But beyond that, we're seeing that Ford and GM, they're just admitting outright they're just losing money mm-hmm. on all these cars. We know that Tesla actually lost money on every car it was it was making for a long time, right? But there was plenty of money for the story, and that helped carry it through for a period of time. And, I, you know, they've turned profitable, but now... People get it. Electric cars, the blush is off that. Like, people aren't scrambling for those. And if you look at the sales price, the resale price for a used Tesla, it's just plummeted, right, by 50% or so. I mean, you can buy a used Tesla 3, Model 3, for, you know, 30, 40 grand, um, you know, where where the purchase price is twice that. Uh, so, so at any rate... <clears throat> Uh, I, I think that, yes, there's there's clearly some tough signs in the EV market. And, and now people have found out that all the public money they spent on EV buses, those didn't work out at all, right? So the whole thing turns out it, it wasn't as easy as we thought. And there's some complexities. Welcome to reality. Realities come to the EV market. Carry on. You know, it seems that just kind of in summary that, that the leaders, it's kind of like your intellectuals uh, on the education side, they had these great theories, but but the application of their theory and reality doesn't hold up to what they're promising it to be. And this is just a common theme that continues to come, you know, it's be true. delivered down from the elite. So it's it's true. There's the idea, and then there's the reality. Yeah. Hey, let's let's make shoplifting a a felony at nine hundred fifty dollars and over. What could happen? Oh. Why are all these stores leaving my city, right? Yeah, <laughs> they can't, right. and they can't get those, those two dots are like two north ends of a magnet. They just can't quite get them together. <laughs> right. You know, and what amazes me is kind of, I always come back to that one scripture. I always think about it, just the wisdom in it. And I, and I can't tell you exactly where, but I know what it says. There's a way that seems right to a man and in, and in the end, it leads to death. Now, of course, that's an, a, a statement that can be true at the extreme, but it's also true in all of this theory and overhype of what's taking place and the application doesn't, doesn't mm-hmm. meet the standards. They're just so detached from, from what's actually taking place. Yeah. And, you know, and I had some individuals around here that were so excited about buying that Ford electric vehicle, but it, it's not lived up to their expectations. So, you know, there's there's just a lot taking place under the surface. So you've got... Tesla that's starting to crack, you know, this is uh, going back to your theme in the fall of last year, uh, uh, creaking and popping is taking place ar- around the edges. Now. Mm-hmm. We had a relief of that with this Fed-induced euphoria or panic purchase when they, you know, first November meeting, you know, do a 180 and go from higher to longer to Fed rate cuts. Well, since then, Markets have accelerated. We've hit all-time highs. <clears throat> Financial conditions have been easing relatively dramatically. We talked about that last week. That's a pretty big deal. And going into March, we've got about a 50% odds. The market's estimating a 50% odds of a Fed rate cut. But the question that, that everyone's asking who understand what's taking place under the surface is, you know, if the markets are at all-time highs, the economy's holding up as good as what they say it is, Financial conditions are this loose, which means that banks are are willing to loan, you know, all institutions are willing to loan to basically anybody who's willing to sign the, the dotted line. Does it make sense to cut rates and does that not run the risk of inflation surging back again, especially when you've got, you know, the, the, the Red Sea issues and the shipping issues, rates are going up, that's a supply chain disruption, that's more cost that's coming in. 
And then, you know, uh, on the other side of that, you've got UPS laying off a lot of individuals here after this labor deal, which, I mean, you could see that coming, right? I mean, just especially after the incredible labor cost that comes out there. And then another side, I was listening to an interview with uh, um, Grant Williams and Mike Green and another Mike that's in there and just a different perspective on the immigration crisis, you know, at a minimum, you know, of all the problems that are out there, you know, this is increased labor, for example, which is driving wages down for the, for the middle, lower, middle, lower class. So how in the world are we going to continue this, this exact, you know, ridiculously euphoric market? when you've got leading economic indicators that are still continuing to contract. So just to kind of bring that well, up. Well, and, and <clears throat> yeah, um, can make, let me make a quick point because I was, um, this came into sharp focus. I was being interviewed by Kim Iverson about this migrant issue because, you know, I was just down in Panama and, and, and so I have a, a new perspective on this and in this invasion that's Invite. happening, right? So let, let's talk about this, because this is actually something they don't want to talk about. They want to make this seem like it's left-right. It's, it's either a Democrat or Republican issue. This isn't. This is an up-down issue. So the people at the top who are on the up, right, the elites making these decisions, oh, they say it's, you know, because we care about these people so much. They don't care about the people, right? They make them go through a really hazardous, if not deadly, journey. Um, there's a lot of crime and rape and stuff that happens along the way. So they make them go through this awful gauntlet to get here. And when they get here... These people, remember what happened when 50 migrants were shipped to Martha's Vineyard? Mm -hmm. That was hysterical. Martha's Vineyard rallied its plucky little, you know, self. And within hours, all these people were shipped off the island with these wonderful people with their sun hats and, and you know, mimosas saying, oh, we care about these people so much. But they just like, whoo, off they went. So the point that Kim made, though, is that all these people, 22 million people illegally in the country as of 2018, another 10 million since then. You know where they that's a, that's like three Houston's, right? Yeah, they end up they don't end up in Martha's Vineyard. They don't end up in Greenwich. They don't end up in Shaker Heights. They end up in places where they have to live somewhere. So they are now competing with poor people in this country, typically. Right. Mm -hmm. you know poor and, and lower middle class so that's the competition so it's it's not good for that end of the thing but it makes the statistics look good because look wage pressure is coming down right it's it's not good for the people who are migrating ultimately you know and it's not good for the people who are already here so i just want to say this isn't a left right issue they no. try and frame it that way because they want us fighting like rats in a cage but it's not it this no. is these people against these people and these people, by the way, when they pump their markets up, let's be clear, 92 and a half percent of all equities are held by the top 10 percent of households and wealth. Mm. It's like it's <clears throat> these are the sorts of things that Plutarch thousands of years ago said the oldest and most fatal ailment of all republics is a gap between the rich and the poor. Mm -hmm. So yeah. these policies have impacts. I just want to point that out again. Uh, I'm not I'm not a. Uh, you know, a bleeding heart egalitarian, everybody has to be equal kind of, per I'm just saying though, these policies are, are really shaping my bearishness at this point in time, because they just keep pushing us in a direction where I'm like, how, we tell me how this story ends, you know, <laughs> like write this, give me the rosy ending, like where's, how's this all work out? But I don't know that they're thinking that far ahead. So carry on.
<laughs> That's a good question. Well, you know, and, and, and my great concern is just the euphoria, the positive, the positive news that's out there for the average retail investor, this fear of missing out. I mean, you know, there's a lot of individuals who just didn't understand what was taking place. So 2013, 14, 15, even many in 2008 just decided to exit the market, right? Like, like yep. they, they don't know how to navigate this environment. They don't have the tools. They're trying to balance their career and deal with their investments at the same time. You know, and this market just continues to go, right? Like, so people are hearing all of the, the, the potential risks that are out there, and they're real. You know, valuations are high from mm -hmm. a historical standpoint. I mean, outside of 1929, you know, we haven't, we haven't seen uh, stocks this expensive. Now, from an education standpoint, you know, price to earnings ratios, if we go back to these valuations, why in the world would investors spend time applying these valuations? And the reality is when we buy a stock or an individual investment or an ETF or a mutual fund, you're buying all the stocks that are in that basket, all the stocks that are in the S&P 500. So your price to earnings ratio matters because all you're paying for is the future earnings of the company. Now, the problem with these euphorias that we're in right now, let's take Amazon, for example, just to pick an example. And I'm going to be general because I, you know, it came to mind, so I'm going to talk about this. This, this isn't exact, but in, in the late 1990s tech bubble boom, you know, Amazon was one of the leaders. Stock went up, had dramatic returns during that period of time. Investors could see the application from a long-term standpoint. So let's bring that back to artificial intelligence today. People can see the application from a long-term standpoint. But I know some people have used it successfully. Other people are still struggling. We know this is going to make a big impact. Um, but the euphoria at the end of this bull market that's taken place here, going back to the Amazon example, investors were right. I mean, you know, from 2000, uh, from 2000 until today, it's been given an incredible return for those investors who've been able to stay there 23 years later. But when the tech bubble burst and reality came back, you know, Warren Buffett, who had underperformed in the late 1990s, outperformed in 2000 to 2003 because investors were like, okay, we've been too euphoric. And if you go back, I could build the argument that the media and Wall Street used their influence to offload all of these to the retail investor. Because the retail investor is, is, tends to be left holding the bag. So if you come, you take that today. Now, to finish that line of thought, Amazon didn't get back to those, prior, those 2000 highs until 2003. 13, 14. So how many investors had the courage to continue to average in that stock over that period of time? Very, very few. And most investors would have given up on, on statistics show us that that investor would have given up on Amazon because 13 years is a long time to hold something if you don't understand why that stock, you know, dropped so much and took so long to come back. So where we are today, this may, momentum may, may carry on into June or July. I wouldn't be surprised to see that. I also wouldn't be surprised to see a pretty strong correction here in the short term just because we, we've got some selling that's taken place under the surface. The Nasdaq's starting mm -hmm. to crack. Tesla's starting to crack a little bit. But all of this euphoria that's out there in the financial media just reminds me of what I saw with bank stocks and in, in 2008 tech stocks in 2000 the major media is like don't worry this is going to be great 
And those investors just panic by because they end up investing like the hare in Aesop's fable because they don't have a strategy, they don't have a plan. And anybody in the industry that has a plan and a strategy has, has essentially been painted as a pariah because, you know, the Fed's been able to bail out uh, the markets consistently and created this everything bubble. Well, they have, and they've been doing it over and over and over again. And so people could be uh, absolutely forgiven for saying, you know what, I think they're going to keep doing that. You know, yeah. they'll bail it out one more time. Can you pull up that chart you had of the long term of the S&P again? Um, yes. <clears throat> you know, so, I think it was one with Hussman where you were showing some of the uh, some of the moments there. It is. So, so you, you know, yeah. So Hussman in his most recent. So yeah, this one, let's look at this one real quick. I mean, that, that is just a straight line. I know it wiggles and it goes down and everything, but pretty much you could put a ruler under that from left to right. <laughs> you really could from the 1929 low all the way up. So, yep. you know, this, this is a chart that Hussman put in, in his most recent market comment, uh, the return of buy low, sell high. So, you know, um, after reading the whole article, I'm still not exactly sure where he came, you know, came up with the title. But basically, it's, you know, this is a point where you want to look from an investor that's patient from a long term standpoint, has a strategy to have your exit plan in place and potentially sell high, because that's what we want to do in application is buy low and sell high. So what he does in, in these highlighted areas here, he goes back all the way to 1929. And he highlights periods of time where the market's overvalued, the undercurrent of the market, let's say the generals are leading when the, when the infantry has left the battlefield and what has occurred on the other side of that. So for example, from 1929, July 1929 to 1950, the S&P 500 total return lags uh, treasury bonds during that period of time from this peak right here. Okay. So you're talking, was that, um, so that's 30, 21 years. And that's what I'm more concerned about. We don't know how bad this will be on the other side. You know, let's go back to the year 1998, 2000. So during this period of time, and that's where Hussman did a phenomenal job of just warning investors that something's coming. And, uh, you know, and then the market cratered, right? Mm -hmm. But the intervention led to the housing bubble. We reached those levels again, market cratered. Intervention continues to go down, and now we're starting to reach these extremes, and you know, and we and they keep kicking the can down the road. My argument is, I think his argument is, you know, not putting words into his mouth, but but just what he's saying is, this is a period of time where where investors can can have decades of return, potentially ten years of return, wiped out because the market's in a euphoria the everything bubble and it's just way ahead of what the long-term uh, earnings capability is of the overall market. So even if we go back to 1967, 1968, you know, we slightly got, uh, we were expensive for this short period of time, but if you look at the index, you know, it was basically flat with a little bit of a breakout 1973 period here all the way out to 1982. So what's that going to do? to the average investor, the average baby boomer, the average retiree. Now, if you're 30, it doesn't really matter, right? If I'm 30 years old and I'm not going to retire till I'm 65, this is the best thing that could ever happen to you, right? Because if your dollar cost averaging into the market, if the market goes down, you're buying more shares. Market goes down, you're buying more shares. If it's here, if you're 30, best thing that could ever happen to you, you're buying more shares. But what happens if you're 65 and you just retired? 
um, you've got a completely different set of risks. So if you don't have a risk managed uh, a process in place or you don't have the wherewithal in your portfolio to weather 14 years of the market going sideways and you're taking distributions, well, guess what? If you've got a million dollar portfolio here, this is an extreme example for educational purposes, but if you've got a million dollar portfolio here and you're drawing 50,000 off of it, well, we'll buy 2003 bottom, guess what? Didn't drop quite this much, but for the educational purposes, now you got $500,000 portfolio and you're still taking 50,000 a year off. Well, uh, well, guess what? That's 10%. So the market makes 10% into 2007 and then that next decline wipes you out. So what concerns me the most is our government has set up a situation here to where let's hope it's not as bad as 1929, okay? But but this is a period of time where it's highly likely that the markets are sideways for the next five, seven, ten years outside of hyperinflation. And what is that going to do to investors who aren't prepared for that type of environment? So it, it, it well, sets yeah. up a very dangerous circumstance. I agree. And, and, and um, <clears throat> so my perspective, I look back at that and it's very tempting to say, look, you know, the past hundred years should be a reasonable guide for the next hundred years. But let's, let's talk about some things that are slightly different. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that this time is different are dangerous words in investing, but there, it, it is a different environment. So from that 70, 70 to 83 moment where it was kind of flat, right? Well, what happened? Well, we came off the gold standard right in the middle of that. Right. Yes. And so let me see, uh, see if I can share this screen. Why does this, um, uh, do, 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 do. this is going to be, uh, this one, I'm going to share this one. All right. So let's take a look at what happened back here. Um, you know, this is where this is total federal debt. This is just debt held by the public, right? Mm -hmm. But this is where the federal debt started going up and up and up. And, and notice it, it's just really like spiking through here. And then here at this great financial crisis, this is where it really took off. And then it really took off around COVID. And so you can clearly see if you look at the shape of this, this isn't a straight line, Paul. No. This is a, what we would call an exponential or a nonlinear line, right? It, an exponential curve fits pretty tight. So we're going to spend more and more and more and more. In fact, um, Peter St. Ange just had a great point. He said, yeah, hey, you know, we just had this really great three point whatever percent, you know, recent GDP reading. But that's in the context of nearly 10 percent deficit spending by the federal government. Right. Yes. Which which is not good. Right. And you can't do that forever um, as a household, as a corporation, as an individual. But that's what's happening is this just spending more and more and more. So that's gotten locked in. So. This is this time different. Is it true that that maybe you know we can't do this sort of uh, incredible, you know, increasing deficit spending forever? Um, I would suggest we can't. Two, we also know that you know during post World War II we had this great econ economic boom. There was this whole industrialization. We built the highway system. We had all this oil that we were able to prosecute. We had uh, you know lots and lots of energy. And then the internet came along and arguably really transformed everything, right? Which which gives you more leverage so that Greenspan could come out and mumble his, oh, productivity. What he didn't understand was productivity is, is I don't know why, he, he, I'm sure he understood it, but this was dumb. Productivity is output by input, right? 
that's what it is. So GDP, look, GDP's up, but the input is your labor cost. We outsourced all the jobs to China, but mm. kept all this stuff going by deficit spending and debt explosion, household debt, corporate debt. We just we were borrowing more to make the GDP look good, and we were using fewer people because all those jobs actually went away. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the highly productive uh, manufacturing jobs, we replaced them with Uber drivers and dog walkers and all that, right? Um, so it looked great, but it's a statistical mirage. Mm -hmm. But still, we were able to persist that mirage. Now, my question is, and again, I'm prepared to be surprised. I don't want to be overly bearish, but what's the engine for growth? What's the story? The story now is it's AI. And I agree, AI could really make things efficient, but not for the average worker, because what AI is going to do is put people out of work. Yes, It's not going to create more productivity, except for the people who own the capital stock and, and all that. But for, I mean, it just, it, let me just be clear. AI is going to ruin the middle class and I'd... upper professional classes. Mm -hmm. No, We don't need lawyers anymore. We won't need accountants. We won't need all kinds of jobs that AI can just do better. Right? right. We won't even need content producers. We won't need script writers. We won't even need actors. Right. This will all go away. Right. right. I mean, especially just with the the um, photo generating capabilities. I mean, the, y y when you really look out there, who's going to be left to buy anything or, or are we just going to be on a complete universal basic income if AI is that impactful, which it looks like it will be with the computing power? And, and that reminds me of a Black Mirror episode. I, I recently yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, I couldn't get yeah. through that first episode of Black Mirror, so I got into the second one, and it's like the modern-day Twilight Zone. It's uh, yeah. very thought-provoking. But um, so, you know, that's a good point. And going back to that debt, you know, and just a reminder to the to the listeners out there is debt. All debt is is bringing forward future purchasing power. You don't have the income today or the assets to purchase something. So you go borrow money from someone else to pull forward your purchasing capability to today, and then you spread that over time. There is a point of diminishing returns when it comes to that that uh, ability mm -hmm. to purchase debt. Now, since removal of the gold standard, the government's like, oh, we're going to have inflation. It's good for you. Well, that, that, that increase over time, from their perspective, I think, is like, okay, well, that brings forward more purchasing power in the future. Your income goes up. You set that down. But the reality is, is we we brought forward from a government level and individual level. If you look at total debt that's out there, a dramatic amount amount of purchasing power, and at some point we're going to hit a wall. You know, my concern is, is you know, the BRICS are are not purchasing treasuries to the extent that they were before. So who's going to be buying? Who's going to fund this debt? Right? Is the government just going to print it? At that point, it's going to potentially lead to hyperinflation, which is something an investor has to be prepared for now and have mm -hmm. a plan in place in case the event that that happens. And then second, uh, about your second point there is diminishing returns, right? We shipped all of these jobs overseas that brought goods down, but what that's done is essentially an equalization of the nations, right? At some point, and I think we've already reached that, wages start to go up in those other countries like China, whether it's Mexico, because we've got a lot of ma uh, manufacturing coming back here, you know, and that drives down the income capability of the U.S. Well, with all this debt, you know, there is diminishing returns. It's kind of like uh, in the farming industry. You have big, 
you know, institutions go in and buy farmland. Well, I don't blame them because they've got the capital to do it. They drive their prices down to try to gain a share of the market. But at some point, those prices can't go any lower because uh, farming doesn't become profitable. And then prices skyrocket. So in nearly every sector of our economy right now, it's like holding that basketball underwater. And we're so close to the point that the hands are losing the grip on that basketball. And we're going to have a dramatic amount of changes in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the investor that's not prepared, that doesn't have a strategy that is going to get wiped out. And, and the investor who thinks that anybody can navigate that perfectly. Nobody's going to navigate it perfectly. What, what you're going to have to find in your approach to this is understand the strengths of an approach and understand the weaknesses of an approach so that you can emotionally stay the course because nothing's going to navigate it perfectly because we're in completely uncharted territory. I mean, there's really, especially in the U.S., we're in completely uncharted territory right now. Well, I love talking with you about this because I agree with all that. And and I, and <clears throat> the first chart you started with where you showed that, gosh, since 1998, commodities really have actually slightly lost ground, you know, that's an unthinkable proposition to me. That's what happens through financialization. This is the orientation I would love to bring to people, this orienting thought process, which is that um, what we're experiencing is not reality. What we're experiencing is a heavy distortion of reality that's brought forward by financialization. If you read Will Durant's incredible tomes about history, I could read you a paragraph out of Athens from about 30 BC where they went through a, a giant debasement of their currency. And it sounds just like today, like all their best and their brightest actually spent more time trying to figure out how to make money with money. Gambling came up, all sorts of vices, debasement led to debauchery. Like there was all like the, your society crumbles, but people respond to incentives. So if it turns out your choices are start a business, have to manage employees, supply chains, risk, market risk, building products, competition, or, I can make 10 times that amount by taking my same brain power and flipping some keys over on Wall Street. Yeah. This is an easy decision to make, right? Your best and your yeah. brightest go here because we're humans and we we respond to incentives. So, yes. The Federal Reserve is in theory should have had at least a few people over there who understood moral hazard and how humans behave. Because what they've done, Paul, is they've created a system where all of our best and our brightest, not all of them, but a lot of them are over there chasing this 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 financialization and along the way we're, we're not really setting up the future prosperity right Correct. and and so you know when i talk to people who are in the oil patch i mean gray hair 40 year experience types of people right mm-hmm. they tell me that we are at the end of that story clearly and inarguably um that it's now harder and harder and we're chasing less and less but we're pretending as if that's absolutely not the case right and the implications of that are profound, which is why I think between here and 2030, people are going to have to really, we're going to have to be nimble. We're going to have to really do our level best to understand what's the noise, what's the signal. And that's going to be really hard for people to do because we have 30 years where the noise was the signal. Yes. Right. And that's hard <laughs> to get out of. It really is. And, you know, and going back to the business and starting a business versus going to Wall Street, I I can tell you this. I left corporate back in 2000, end of 2003, and went independent. 
we have grown fast enough to, by God's grace, to stay ahead of that guillotine of government regulation. Mm-hmm. But it's heartbreaking to me today because there are so many regulations that have been implemented into the industry that I'm in that would have raised the barrier to entry that there's no way in today's environment that I could have replicated that jump to go independent. So, and, and my argument is this, yeah, some regulation is good, but, but what I'm seeing across a lot of industries is the barrier to entry has been raised so high and it's not about protecting investors. It's not about protecting consumers. This is about big corporations using their uh, lobbying power to raise the barrier of entry so that they can get an attempt to monopolize. And look, don't get me wrong, that's a part of what business owners do. I don't necessarily fault the business owners for trying to do that because there's no integrity in it, Mm -hmm. but it's understandable because their focus is to grow that business. Their focus for the shareholders is to grow the business. But the counterbalance to that is supposed to be politicians who are serving the American people and saying no to these these contributions Mm -hmm. and these buyouts that'll stand there with the integrity and say, look, I get it, but no, okay? There's a limit to your business. Find another way to grow. We're not going to do it through regulations that that are really only designed to protect your business. So that's the frustrating thing. And you think about just how disheartening that is to young men and young women who have a great idea and they go out there to try to implement it. And, you know, they, they, they need to borrow money. They don't have access to Wall Street. If they do go to Wall Street, they get bought out, right? Somebody else uh, offers them, you know, a lot of money or they drive them into the ground and then take over the idea and run forward with it. So, you know, we need that political environment. And my argument that I talk to individuals about, you do too, you spend a lot of time educating people for this. On the other side of this is going to be great opportunity for those who who have the courage to look at the mm-hmm. world of truth, have a strategy in place and understand why they're doing what they're doing because the path less travel is harder to walk. It takes a lot more emotional strength, but that's where the real joy is, right? You know, Mm. we look at these, we look at these individuals who took that path less traveled and we celebrate their success and we forget the sleepless nights they had and the discipline that it took to stay the course and put their emotions under control and understand why. That's why a plan is so important and the strategy is so important. They're doing what they're doing because the end result will be worth it. It will be. Uh, so those who, you know, those of us out there that are looking at this, yeah, this is emotionally frustrating and we shake our heads and we fight as hard as we can. But on the other side of this is great opportunity for those who stay the course. I totally agree. And, <clears throat> um, you know, important piece of framing that I bring out all the time is that um, there we have to distinguish between types of wealth. Right. So mm-hmm. primary wealth. Right. Is. Well, you, you have a farm, I have a farm. My primary wealth is the water, the fresh water that comes down in the soil, right? It's just, if I didn't, if I lived in a place with no soil, no water, Arizona, uh, I, I would have a very different base of wealth that I could operate from. And then secondary wealth is turning that soil and water into beef and chicken and, and, and vegetables and things like that, right? And that takes effort, right? But that's the real wealth. And then tertiary wealth, is is stocks and bonds and and you know paper and all this other stuff right and there always has to be a relationship between that tertiary wealth and the primary secondary so as we look into this secondary wealth is the means of production i truly believe when you talk about the opportunities that are coming so young people often say hey chris you know 
given all this, what should I do? Like invest in yourself, get your skills, knowledge, work with people who, who, who understand, you know, how to actually get things done, not this fantasy world of becoming a TikTok influencer or something that could go away, right? The, the skills you have are really important, and the most important skills are how you take primary wealth and turn it into secondary wealth. That never goes out of style. No matter what happens, stock market could skyrocket, crash, completely implode. This won't matter. <laughs> you know, this will always be the same. People, people need primary, secondary wealth. So, so that, to me, is the great pendulum of life. We swing from things to paper. And it's happened so many times in history. And paper, in this case, is the representation of just trying to print your way to prosperity. Yes. Now, if you could print your way to prosperity, we'd all be speaking Latin because the Romans would have cracked that nut, <laughs> right? They made cement right. things that, are, that we still don't understand, right? They were incredible engineers and architects and very thoughtful people. They, you know, um, good luck you know, seeing if there's any uh, American-made buildings of the 20th century in 2,000 years, right? Probably not, uh, right? Like that. So. I highly doubt it too. So, so that great pendulum—that's that's the piece where you know we're swinging from things to paper. But within that paper world, there are still things that represent and tie back to real fundamental stuff. That's why I happen to like, and this isn't investment advice, just educationally. I like real stuff, right? Um, because it's out of favor. It'll come back in favor again. The pendulum always swings, and. That's kind of the framing I would be looking at, you know, if with a longer horizon in particular is it, the, the primary secondary always comes back into into favor because that's the stuff we really need. People need food, yes. shelter, yes. et cetera, basic stuff. And regardless of what the elites are trying to say, we need the ability to produce food and goods and things that we need on a regular basis. And, and, and just to go back to that that um, screen again to reference that. Yes, please. So, you know, this is again, this is 2008 till today. Look at where commodities are. Now, I'm going to go through and reference one other period of time in history. So this is 1990 to the year 2000. Now, I don't have daily data on these, on these indexes going back prior to 1995, 1996. Yep. But it gives a good uh, representation of the same thing. So guess what? Chris, we've been here before, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. from 1995, I mean, the market was sideways, and then we had this ridiculous momentum, you know, and then the market started to crater with the fell of long-term capital management in 1998. Government bailed us out. Then they were, you know, uh, keeping rates low because they were scared to death of the Y2K bug. Yeah. And the yep. market started running, you know, started to, to roll over. It gave us one warning here that this was in, and then poof. We went up to new highs. Well, look at that. Investors here were just decimated. Now, mm -hmm. what happened on the other side of that? So this is uh, January 1st of 2000 through December 31st of 2007. So that black line is the S&P 500, right? So mm -hmm. you had a 50% decline, and it did nothing for seven years. But for the investor who was nimble and patient, you know, mm -hmm. The commodity index was up 213% over that period of time, and emerging markets were, were up closer to 155. So, you know, you know, there is historical precedent when we reach these extremes, just to reference that again, we are at an extreme. Now, at this point, it's not as extreme as what the uh, 1990 bull run was, and who knows, maybe we get another six months and the market's up another 20% after a 10% correction. I don't know how this is going to end. 
but we are much closer to the end and a and a rebalancing okay because you know what happened in the late 1990s is all of a sudden when the market started cratering institutions started removing into those lower valuation asset classes and over the next seven years they made a dramatic turn so you know it's important that you have uh, a strategy that will give you the ability to make those adaptations and this is not necessarily a recommendation this is not a recommendation you got to talk to a financial advisor but you know you can average into, say, through a 401k or retirement plan, these underperforming categories, average into them, it starts to accumulate some exposure over that period of time, and you have an insurance-type position or enough of a position to keep it on your radar, mm -hmm. but you have a plan in place that when that momentum starts to change and when you start to see that money start to flow in other places because it's all supply and demand, then you overweight those categories or have a strategy that gives you confidence to overweight those categories because that's more than likely where the greater returns are coming from over the next seven to eight years. Now, now let me ask you a question that will, that will separate you from probably most other financial advisors. Uh, what are your thoughts on gold in this context? Okay. So again, you got to talk to your uh, uh, advisor. Absolutely, gold, gold is one of my favorite holdings. Not a recommendation, but I really like gold from a long-term standpoint. Now, I believe that that an investor that's appropriate, if you have an emergency fund in place, number one. And what amazes me, Chris, is I talk to a lot of people that that don't have emergency funds because they're terrified of what inflation is going to do in that circumstance. Mm -hmm. But for those of you out there listening, you've got to have an emergency fund because it keeps you from being forced to liquidate a good holding at lower prices. So let's say, for example, you're all in gold, right? Now, not a recommendation. I'm just using the example for educational purposes. In 2007, 2009, gold dropped during the liquidation phase from 1,000 to about 700. Okay, that's normal because when, when the selling hits Wall Street, People are forced to sell anything that they can sell to cover their debts. You know, if you take GLD, for example, just, just an example, I'm not recommending GLD at all because it's not backed by physical gold across the board. Just as an, an example, your retail investors may be in there. Well, guess what? They're forced to sell or they panic selling because mm -hmm. gold starts dropping. If you don't have an emergency fund to weather that period of time, what happens if you lose your job and you got to choose between selling gold at 700 an ounce or you know paying the mortgage payment or the rent payment or or whatnot so you got to have an emergency fund first but then you have a uh, i like the idea of an investor having a 10 percent exposure as insurance from a long-term standpoint to gold and from my perspective at some point if gold breaks out of this consolidation phase to the top or if we get a liquidation and gold pulls back I mean, I would not hesitate to go uh, up to 30, 35% in gold and precious metals in a portfolio because our tools will allow us to do that. But we have to have the backdrop and the green lights across the board that that's a, a prudent decision to make at the time. So I like gold. Wall Street doesn't like it. Now, and in my opinion, Chris, I'll tell you why. There are a couple of reasons. One, it didn't perform well during the 1990s, you know, from 1990 to 2003. Really, from the 1987 top, it didn't perform well. So you had a whole generation that got burnt on expecting gold to do what it did in the 1970s. That's number one. So you've got the psychological side. Number two, it doesn't generate any fees for the big uh, warehouses, 
right? Because when you buy physical gold and you set it there and hold it in your portfolio, or even if you buy it in an ETF, you know, like I, I like the Van Eck Merck Gold Trust, that's one. Or if you're buying it through Gold Core, for example, guess what? There's no fees generated for Wall Street. Well, you know, that in and of itself, and I can tell you from my experience in corporate Wall Street, they're all about our preferred mutual fund families. So they have to pay to play, right? Now, they'll disclose it to you in those 5,000 pages of reports that they yep. send out. You know, it was better when we had two pages and it was a bullet point, but now it's 5,000 pages and nobody reads yep. it. So they'll disclose it to you that, that it's pay to play, but, but that's just what's going on in Wall Street and in and, and the corporate firms. And that's why we left and went independent. It's a harder path. There's a, I spent a lot of money keeping up with regulations and we could be a lot more profitable if we were a corporate, but I don't have the confidence that we can do what's best for clients because, you know, go to any major warehouse and, and, and ask them, you know, if, if they'd, re you know, would be okay with you putting 20% of uh, gold in your portfolio. Again, not a recommendation, just a scenario. And the answer is going to be, you're crazy. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and it's because of the incentives, obviously. Right. So, so right. even if I, if I hold and I don't, but I'm just making an example of, let's say I hold shares in, in company a, right. I'll, I'll, I'll anonymize this. Those are mine. Mm -hmm. Actually, those are available in most portfolios to be lent out and collateralized and somebody else can borrow them and short them. So even though I'm holding them, wall street's out there taking its little nips from it. Um, all the way along, even though I hold this, you know, it's just how it's all about that. that that's why I do love working uh, with you. And, and in, uh, you would have to be independent because I, I don't trust the corporates anymore. Listen, they got incentives. They have their own incentives, right? And they say there's this Chinese firewall between their buy side and their sell side. But when your broker is saying, hey, and I had this happen to me, hey, WorldCom is a good buy. I found out later that was because they were their buy side was sitting on a ton of this stuff. Yes. And they the the bat phone picks up and somehow with get got across the Chinese firewall and the sell side is busy moving product off of the you know I just didn't trust the incentives and I and I don't like to have to do all that digging before I can begin to trust somebody you know and the same thing happened now with doctors and hospitals and you know putting people on vents and why did they put so many people on remdesivir oh they got three thousand dollars from the government if they did yeah that's a weird incentive was that best for the person. Now we know it was not, um, no. you know, and so that's, that is the system. We have to be very clear on the incentives. That's why I'm a full disclosure kind of person. I will tell everybody absolutely as a matter of policy where I stand on things and, and what I hold, what I don't hold if, if necessary. So um, you have to, you have to. And, and one thing that, that you're great at, who, uh, who was it says, I cannot remember right now trying to come to mind, but basically, you know, when the information changes, I'll change my mind. What do you do, sir? So that's the mm -hmm. important thing. You know, if, if we if we find out the information is wrong, we change our mind, right? You got to pay attention to the data. You have to follow the data. So one other thing I want to I think show that you, was I think that was John Maynard Keynes uh, in, in a Senate. That's right. Yeah, I should have remembered that. But yeah, uh, yeah, that's one, that's one thing I enjoy talking to you about. It's like we have so many t topics that we cover. Sometimes I'm really struggling to pull together the individuals, but you do remember. Um, so one thing I want to show you here is um, the screen, and I want to I want to go back and talk about gold here, and let's talk about what Wall Street um, did. So can you see my screen there, Chris? Sure can. Yep. So basically, this is the exact same chart that I showed earlier from January first of two thousand and eight, 
until today in 2024, but I added a pink line. And mm-hmm. guess what that line is, Chris? Would you take a wild guess? That is gold. Gold, I didn't, okay. I didn't give you the opportunity to take a guess, but look at that. So mm-hmm. for the investor who was diversified, yeah, okay, if you had bad timing and you purchased <laughs> 2011, 2012, mm-hmm. you've had little returns over this period of time. But but if you've dollar cost averaged into it over time, you 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 know you're in pretty good shape. And if you look at that compared to other asset classes, yeah, it's not outperformed the S and P 500, but you, you know for a brief moment in early 2020, it did. So you mm-hmm. can see, look at what it did during a period of chaos, and you know from 2019 to the COVID market drop. You know, that's not necessarily what I would expect during a market sell-off, but that shows what gold can do during a period of time like that. And I think I have one more chart in here that goes back, you know. Oh, that's a beauty. Look at that purple line. That is a cup and handle. Yes. That's extraordinary in, in technical terms. Can you explain a cup and handle to people real quick? So a cup and handle technically is basically you get a market sell-off, and then it starts to sell off again, and then you build this little handle over here. Let me see if I could probably draw one on the screen. No, I'll have to change a few things. But mm-hmm. that's a long-term uh, bullish pattern that if you break out of, it's the psychology behind investors You know, sold this rally thinking that we're going to see a decline, but you get a series of rounded bottom that looks like a cup here. This would be the top of the cup. This would be the bottom of the cup. Then you get this handle. And that's a psychological pattern that that once executed, when you break out of the top side of what would theoretically be the top of that cup, you know, it can give you some indication. I can't remember the calculations because I, I reference it, but but it gives you an indication that you're going to see a much higher price. So, yeah, and I'm even looking at the larger cup and handle that that, that big oh, yeah. one, this that one big right giant here. one. Yeah. yeah, the lo- and, and the longer time frame that occurs, and actually this one is a lot more clear there than what this is on this side so you've got this sell-off you've got a rounded bottom you've got a retracement i'd love to actually overlap this with fibonacci retracement just to see what numbers we hit but you come up this way and then Mm -hmm. you've got investors that are you know and, and you think about this in context of gold right where do you turn on the TV and hear any positive news about gold, right? It's at the mm-hmm. fringes, you know, what the mainstream would consider fringes of society because they're they're losing their hold and, and, and we're stepping up. But, you know, those who are really looking at the data see it. So in, in the midst of all the negativity for the average retail investor on gold and you've got this massive uh, uh, cup and handle pattern, uh, the upside would be, you know, I hate to give any targets without uh, talking to somebody, but the upside would be up there a lot. Let's put it that way. But again, going back, yeah. to, gold, going back to gold, I, Chris, go, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I track this like a hawk. Gold is, a, is an area I know a lot about, and I follow a lot of people who are on the inside. So this is a funny thing, Paul. If I wanted to, I could find out really what you would consider to be amazing like state secrets about our military before I could tell you how much gold actually still exists in Western vaults. It is one of the most carefully guarded <laughs> secrets. So we have, we have to peer from the outside and sort of guess. And so I track things like shipments through refineries in Switzerland and how many kilo bars are headed off to Asia, mostly China, um, and, and so on. There's a, been a massive flow of gold from West to East. Mm-hmm. We don't know exactly how much, but it's pretty staggering and significant. And we saw a lot of it really that ramped up some by the you know tracking through the smoke signals. 
when it hit the top of that cup thing, remember 2000, there was this huge battle to try and keep it under 2000. Because for whatever reason, Wall Street, Federal Reserve, the BIA, who knows? But the Western interests, they don't like the big round numbers on gold. You know, there was a big battle at 1000. I remember a battle at 500 because I'm that old. You know, I remember these battles. So, but those battles are costly because, you know, they play their paper games and their tricks, but fundamentally it does cost them some physical and a lot of physical has gone over from west to east prediction someday they're in self-interest alone we're like that's it we've scraped the bottom of the barrel and we can't do this anymore and and i think that's when the game that that we break out of that cup in, in a significant way because the shenanigans have to stop and then we have to get back to real pricing again the pendulum swings fantasy back to reality us gold bugs have been waiting for reality to bite for a very long time, but I think we're in the early stages of that and we're seeing it because it's harder and harder for these interventions to, to sort of stick, you know, right, right. and keep the price down. Well, and, you know, and, and one comment before I go into another thought, I don't think that gold that's left the West and headed to the East is ever coming back because I don't, yeah, think, probably that, not. I don't think that Western... Uh, institutions and investors are going to have enough capital to pay the price that they're going to have to be able to pay to bring it back. And furthermore, you've got the risk that those countries could institute export bans on that gold and just say, we're not going to let it leave the country at some point. So, you know, that's a concern that I have from an overall and, uh, standpoint. Editorially, to complete, yeah, just, just to add on to this, this is funny, right? Wall Street hates gold. You read articles in CNBC and it's just like barbarous relic and they trash on it. And if it ever goes down, they have articles written by AI instantly to talk about, you know, how, how, how bad of an investment gold is all that. Right. So on the one hand, it's this worthless thing that we really it's ignorable and it really has no place in a portfolio. But at the same time, it's too important to actually get a public audit of the public's gold to find out how much is actually still in the vaults. Trust us. It's all there. No, you can't see it, right? Uh, and I'm like, well, why, if it's this irrelevant, why not just open the vaults and we'll just count? It's very simple. A, a, an audit of bars is as simply as counting them and drilling a couple to make sure it's the purity, you think. It's very simple. Right. Haven't had one since the 70s, allegedly, and even that one was a little suspect. Like, we'll open this one door. <laughs> it's all there, see? <laughs> so why, yeah. why, the sec why all this secrecy if it's this unimportant that that's that's the mystery i agree i agree completely and the other side would argue you know why do you want to be secret if you have something to hide but you know we're going to blank we're going to project that onto you but we're going to give you all kind of reasons why we can't you know we have some things to hide <laughs> <laughs> so it's a matter of national security that's totally unimportant it's right, like right so you know <laughs> right. let's, let's just talk about just kind of finish that gold train just a little bit Okay, there's no perfect asset class, but when you're talking about insurance, gold has a couple of things to offer that other asset classes don't. So, Chris, one of the things that I can't, I, I could not say, I do believe that it that we're going to exit this in an extremely inflationary manner with potentially a currency crisis. So I've spent a lot of time building strategies, put them on the shelf. When we cross certain thresholds or decision points, I've spent the time doing the research so that we can plug and play those approaches. We spend a lot of time talking to the people that we run financial plans for. Okay, you know, this is what happens to you if we mm -hmm. have really high inflation. So if we cross this threshold, this is the strategy we need to implement. 
so that so that we're ready, right? Because I'd rather spend the energy now preparing because it is a, a highly likely outcome. On the other side of that, we also can't say that, that, that we're already in the midst of all of this asset price inflation and that we ultimately have a deflationary event like occurred during 1929 because debt levels are so high, you know, mm. we, we have a deflationary event. So, look, I'm going to pick on Southern Company because it's in the, in, in the South. Now, not a recommendation, but they're a utility company. You know they're they're under regulation. They they've got protected competition, right? So it's highly unlikely that Southern Company's ever going to be a, a company that goes bankrupt. But if we had a great 1929 type great deflation, okay, it is a risk that a company that has any debt levels could go bankrupt. Well, the good thing about gold, if you hold physical gold, they don't have any gold doesn't have a creditor, okay? So if we have that big deflationary event. Yes, gold is going to drop in price, okay, because because you had deflation, but you don't have to worry about losing that gold if it's held in the correct manner to, to a debt collapse because it doesn't have any creditors behind it. It doesn't owe anybody anything. So the fact of the matter is you still have purchasing power if you own gold versus a theoretical bankrupt see of, of Southern Company, for example, or some any stock that's out there. Uh, so so it does offer some insurance protection for investors across the board across uh, against worst case scenario, because if we did have that big of an event, the fact that you have any assets, right, you don't have to na navigate it perfectly. The fact that you have any assets and that you're not encumbered by debt and you can still maintain the assets that you have, that means you have purchasing power that a large majority of the population doesn't have right now. And that means that you and your family can navigate it better than the average person. And if you've prepared good enough, you and your family and extended community can navigate it better because you're in a position to take advantage and purchase uh, assets and turn them into income producing assets that other people can't. This is a great point. I, I, I so, so many sparks are going off. Um, uh, so, so when you hold gold, it's a monetary asset. The BIS says that the Bank of International Settlements is considered what's a tier one asset. So it's as good as cash, right? Um, within the banking system. Now, here's the fun part. When you hold that monetary asset, gold has one feature that nothing else in the financial universe has, which is that it you can hold it and it is your asset, your financial asset, and it is simultaneously nobody else's liability. Mm -hmm. I hold an asset. It's a U.S. Treasury bond, my asset, their liability. Mm -hmm. But even these things we call cash, it's a Federal Reserve note. It, it says it right on there. It's, it's a legal contract. You should read the writing sometime. I invite everybody, pull a dollar bill out or a 20 or a 100. Read it. It's a contract. Mm -hmm. This, you know, this, uh, you know, currency is... is um, Valid for all debts, public or private. It, it's it's the Federal Reserve note. So it's their liability. Your asset, their liability. Okay. So you say we could get into this punishing deflation. If we do, I'm going to argue here's why we're not going to get into one for very long. Um, and that is, I'm going to get to myself to this sharing my screen. And I'm going to have to pull up ah my favorite one. So I've just pulled... 
hold this up. This is um, TCMDO, Total Credit Market Debt Outstanding at the Federal Reserve. This is debt, federal, state, mm-hmm. private, not unfunded liabilities. That's different. Social Security being in a shortfall and all that. Just debt, straight up debt. Woo, this little period right here was the only time in history that debt went backwards. That's 2008 through the uh, second quarter, 2010. Um, went down for, for those six quarters. That almost blew the system up. So they learned their lesson, like, let's not do that. And, of course, debt's been on a rocket ride. But look at this number now. What do you see? I see $96 trillion of debt. If that starts to go into what you call a, a deflationary episode, yeah. it's lights out. Like, the whole system implodes. Like, it literally breaks. And that's what they're afraid of. And I trust when, when people are afraid of things, um, you know. That, 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 Paul, I don't see how we can go from like with $96 trillion of debt in the system on a $30 trillion GDP or whatever it is at this point, of which 10% of that is actually government excess. I don't know. I I don't see how they can afford to allow a deflation to ever start. It might start, but they will do, they will move heaven and earth to prevent that from going any further. And what does that mean? Very simply, they'll print. That's right. And how much will they have to print? I don't know. Lots. <laughs> lots. They're going to have to print lots. But at the same time, I like to go through the exercise when we look at that, when I have the conversations with individuals and say, okay, one statement you made that is if, if we get into a debt deflation spiral, that's it, lights out, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about federal government bankruptcy. You're talking about corporate bankruptcies. You're talking about really bankruptcies on a global scale, which is truly an absolute reset, right? And it'll be nearly impossible for even a prepared investor to hide from that. But again, going back to that one asset that does that is not somebody else's liability that doesn't have any creditors on the other side is gold. So I do I, I I'm with you. I think we're gonna have a deflation episode, I think. Now it's possible that they're that they don't even that they're so scared of that that they don't even allow it to happen. That that's kind of a nightmare for investors because you're pinned to the wall and you just have to embrace risk. Hold your nose and embrace that risk. Right? But if if they if they take that path where they keep it pinned to the wall, then commodities, emerging markets, other asset classes are going to take off. So at least you have somewhere that you can reduce that risk and have an outperformance capability. But if it does spiral out of control and we get worst case scenario and you have some physical gold that you looked at like insurance, again, I'm laying my argument, but I'm not making a recommendation. You, those of you listening have to talk, call me or talk to a financial advisor. You've got to talk to a professional about this or we get in trouble. i got to disclose that. So, But if you're holding that physical gold and you've looked at it like insurance, hey, I'm taking a portion of this asset class that I'm setting over here that I'm going to hold physically. I hope 10 years from now it's the same value that it is today, right? When you buy fire insurance on your home, you don't get 10 years from now and go, dang, I wish my house had burnt down because I just wasted all this money on fire insurance. No, you have it there as insurance for a catastrophic situation. So that's one of the reasons why, regardless of where the price is today, you know, for those, if it's appropriate for your plan and if you have an emergency fund in place and if you're, you know, and you've talked to a professional that can explain the reasons why, it does make sense to allocate a portion of your liquid assets to physical metals that you hold as insurance against worst case scenario. And the added benefit is, Chris, if they print that much, 
and uh, and the BRIC countries are are you know utilizing gold. They've been buying it for a reason, and maybe they introduce a quasi gold back you know percentage gold back currency. Well, then guess what? Gold's going to go through the roof too. So if we get either extreme, that insurance policy can pay off really well. Absolutely, oh, absolutely, and um, you know I, uh, I I talk to really substantially wealthy people on a far too frequent basis who have zero exposure to gold, right? It, it's astonishing to me, right? Because you just look at all these, these macro features and you go, okay, this is just insurance policy. Gold has always had some value. It might go down in what we see as a relative price, but I can't find any period of history where it went to zero. So, um, you know, that, that's sort of like a, well, at least you know that much, right? Your, your fire insurance policy may expire after having been just a net cost and go to zero. Right. In essence, you know, (laughs) but it's one of those things where, you know, I call it an insurance policy, but it's more than that um, because it has one other feature that I want to talk about. It has an embedded call option in it. And so for people who don't know, an option is it is is a thing that has a potential value if something happens. Right. Mm -hmm. And a call option is saying if this thing really goes up in price, I'm, 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 you know, I'm going to have that call option, a put option is betting something will go down in price. But the call option that's embedded in gold is this, which you just referenced, um, which is that it's a monetary asset. It's not really part of any monetary system, but if it gets remonetized, and this could be a very small probability event, maybe it won't happen. We'll use cryptocurrencies, digital assets instead. The world won't go this way. But it's a non-zero possibility that it may get remonetized at some point. And then you have to pick some crazy numbers like, what would it be worth? I don't know. How much gold is there? How much currency is floating around? Divide one by the other. You get stupid numbers, right? You know, I've seen numbers, 100,000 an ounce, whatever, just dumb. But but it's non-zero that gold gets remonetized. So holding it actually has an embedded call option most people aren't aware of. And it's a very low, it's like buying a really out of the money call option, you know, 10 years in the future. Kind of a thing. It's like very improbable this will pay off. But if it does, it has that embedded value. I don't think that's priced into gold for, at this point. I don't no. think most people see it that way. No. And, and if I remember correctly, going back to, to the peak that occurred in the 1970s, gold reached the point where it was worth more than all U.S. dollars in circulation. I'll get bearish on gold uh, priced in U.S. dollars when it's worth about 20% more than all U.S. dollars in circulation. And that number is ridiculously higher than where we are right now. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I, I like it for a lot of reasons. People ask me too, you know, are, are you concerned that it'll be confiscated? Um, it was in 1933, right, by Roosevelt. Um, but at that point in time, gold was money. It wasn't confiscated because it was gold. It was confiscated because it was money. That was it was the only legal tender actually behind. It. So so that's not true today. Um, so that's a slightly different thing. You know where I get scared though, is when at some point in the future the few remaining oil exporting countries say, I don't care what price of anything is. It's this many grams for a barrel of oil, of yes. grams of gold. Yeah, that- and and the price is irrelevant. It could be five thousand ounce, fifty thousand, three dollars. We don't care. We want, we want, you know, three grams for a barrel of oil. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the end of it, right? At that point, I get worried because <laughs> now you have to have the stuff if you want to get oil. And I could see governments getting, doing what governments do under that scenario. But mm-hmm. beyond that, I don't have a lot of concerns that it's going to get re, reconfiscated because there's no, it's not money. 
No. I'm not necessarily concerned about that either. I mean, I, you could build the argument that if we had to compete against some type of quasi-gold-backed uh, currency in the BRICS, mm -hmm. that, that that could happen in the U.S. But, you know, it's, there's an easy way to solve that problem uh, for, uh, from my standpoint. Now, it's not perfect, but this is something I've thought about. Well, if you're a U.S. investor, buy Canadian maple leaves, right? 99.9% .9 pure 24-karat gold. Well, you've got the added benefit that, that you know, if unless they confiscated all gold and you're ready to give up your jewelry, I mean, I guess they could put levels in there. You've got a little extra protection against um, having to turn in your American-minted coins to an American government. And theoretically, right, you know, if, uh, well, uh, I was going to say, you know, if you're a U.S. citizen and you melted down those coins into something else, which is something you're not supposed to do, so I can't recommend that, you know, the jurisdiction doesn't necessarily have um, the ability to, to pull you out. Maybe that changes. I don't know. But there are a few things you can do if that's something that concerns you to, to give you a mm -hmm. little peace of mind. And then, yeah, and... You mentioned them before, but I do like Goldcore. Um, they are a company that, that uh, Peak Prosperity has a nice relationship with, and we, we really admire and love each other. And we do have a um, a uh, an affiliate relationship with them. So understand in full disclosure. But I like them. I like them a lot, and and uh, they have a really great product. And there are a number of companies that will give you similar exposure. And it's this, which is I have some of my gold stored out of the country in countries that I consider to have jurisdictionally, um, it would be difficult to seize that. Not impossible, no guarantees, of course, but you got to spread your bets around a little bit. So, um, yes. you know, if you have some of your gold held, just make it a, a number. If it's in Switzerland, they can't seize it. And the Swiss people have this thing where they have to have a supermajority referendum vote in order to change the law that would allow them to do that sort of a thing. That's the kind of thing you can see coming from a long ways off because um, mm -hmm. they have to, they have to, they have to propose a, a new referendum law and the people have to vote on it. I mean, these are all things that would give you time to adjust if it came to pass, but I can't see that happening either for a variety of reasons, but never say never. Right. So um, these are all things, unfortunately we have to think about in this environment. Now it that shouldn't be this complicated, Right. We should have more trust that we're all in this together and it's not sort of an us versus them. I have to protect myself from some grabby people. But this is kind of the story of history, isn't it? You know? Yeah, you it know? is. Em empires get a little over the tips of their skis, get a little too complicated for their own good, make too many regulations. They kill the golden goose, and then they, but they just throttle that goose right to the end, you know? Yeah, they do, don't they? <laughs> If we continued to see the introduction of free markets, it would make a big difference. But we, we're we're not seeing free markets right here. Free markets yeah. are where we can thrive. Uh, controlled yes. markets and centrally planned markets just haven't worked out throughout history. You know, the U.S. didn't get here by by being a, a controlled market. It became it was a free country and innovation and and but then you've got the asset class come in grabbing choking the neck of the golden goose. That's well said, Chris. Yeah, well, I believe in people. I believe in free markets. I, people are amazing, creative, wonderful things. But regulated markets are the opposite of all of that. Um, right. That, you know. So, yeah. So, uh, I do get a lot of questions when we're talking about gold and precious metals because people ask about what about silver? What about platinum? Now, I really mm -hmm. like those. But in the context of what we're talking about, gold is kind of your your insurance. Silver would be a little bit more of insurance plus speculation. And platinum would be kind of speculation on steroids. That's just a way to think about them. So you got to think. Yeah. About 
standpoint. We should do a special episode sometime and talk about these because I, I, I actually love these and many other commodities, copper, yeah. oil, yeah. because of very fundamental supply-demand mismatches that have happened for a lot of reasons. And I think it's, again, one of these things where there's a lot of what they call alpha. There's some real intelligence in here that, that we can look at that I think most of Wall Street's overlooking because they're just fascinated with their financially sophisticated shenanigans, right? But there's some fundamental things going on that we should have a longer conversation about because of just, you know, depleting stocks of these things and how long it takes to open a mine and yada, yada. Um, the, we, we have astonishing supply-demand mismatches that even, you know, J.P. Morgan and Goldman's commodity desks are over there actually screaming about. They're like, we're, we're short. Like, we're short this stuff, right? This is a thing, right? And everybody's yeah. like, ah, who cares? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Currently. So, and, and, and the sad part is, is just the incentive of Wall Street. So when, when all, all that anybody cares about is beating some index, and now you're a mutual fund money manager and you're having a hard time keeping up with ETS because your expense ratios are a lot higher, guess what? The C-suite fires the guys who aren't uh, outperforming the index, so you end up having a bunch of mutual funds that are that are mimicking the index because they want to keep their job at all costs. So mm -hmm. why in the world would you, you know, if you're a, a, a professional money manager and you have, unless you're mandated to be able to go into that category, and if you're mandated, your assets haven't grown a tremendous amount just because of the fact it's not a popular place. You know, the, the whole structure of Wall Street right now is set up to chase what's working until it blows up. And the big professionals are are going to use, I believe, um, you know, the media sources to to offload their shares onto the average retail investor who just doesn't know, right? I mean, that, and this is what I get all the time. That this this reminds me, you know, you get these phone calls, and I have them come in every now and then. They they don't call me much because I think I've I've uh, burnt all of them up. But they'll call me. They're like, hey, Paul. You know, we've got this great stock that we need to unload, you know, that I say unload, that we need you to look at and, and buy for your investors. It's a great return. I'm like, okay, look, there's a thing called insider trading, right? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, so do insiders tell everybody what they want to buy? You know, I mean, you're, you're not going to call me. You're wanting me to offload this on to my clients, and I'm not going to offload your junk onto them. Well, then now it goes to the average retail investor and they're like, hey, you know, this is the greatest stock you can buy through an email. I'm like, look, somebody's spending a lot of money trying to offload these shares to you in a lot of cases. Now, there's good publications, right? But I'm saying the large majority of them is, is just firms that are designed to offload these thinly shaded uh, traded shares for big institutions that have large amounts of them and they've got to get out. That's just That's just what the retail investor has to deal with today. And that's why strategies are so important to help you determine what you need to buy and when you need to buy it and when you need to sell it. So I get these calls from the, these firms that from time to time that are like, hey, Paul, you've got a, you know, this is a great stock. This is something. And, and my first question is, is, well, uh, you know, who's the largest owner? Is it in institutions? I have fun with them for a few minutes. And then I'm like, okay, there's this thing called insider trading. I'm not saying that's what we need to do. You can go to jail for that. But insiders don't project their information to the world because they want to have an advantage over. So the reality is, is the only reason they're calling me is not to sell me a research uh, service. There are good research services out there, but they're trying to offload shares. So one of the things I see all the time is individuals will call me. I'm like, okay, where'd you hear about this from? These massive email campaigns trying to offload shares. 
So we see it from emails, we see it trying to do it to professionals, we're, they're playing on greed and now I really believe we're seeing it in the efforts of the media to, to say, hey, this is, you know, without saying it, this is a new permanent plateau so that they can offload to the average investor. Now, they may be rewarded for six or 12 months, but it's hard to see it lasting much beyond that with the economic data. Uh, that's deteriorating and continuing to deteriorate on the surface. Some's held up better. That's what the market's excited about, but it's still yeah. deteriorating. So the question is, is when does that deterioration continue to accelerate? Because by most historical measures, we've been in a recession at this point uh, with the economic data. Well, we have, and I'm old school. I think recessions are a good thing. Right. It's it's part of the natural process where you got to clear out the dead wood. Right. And I really decried like 2008, nine. Right. Remember all the heroics that that the government went through to stop government motors, GM from going under. Listen, it would have been very disruptive. But you know what would have happened? Better, well run, more nimble companies would have stepped into that vacuum and lots of jobs would have been created and we might have better products. I remember when people are like, Oh, you know, you can't, Elon can't compete with NASA. You know, this is, takes a government to go to space, right? That was the story. He was like, yeah, I don't believe your story, right? And yeah. now we have, now, now we have private industry taking us to space and, you know, giving us things like Starlink. Again, you know, uh, it's just been amazing watching what happens when entrepreneurship comes along. That's what recessions do. They just give entrepreneurs a, a, an opportunity to come in and give us better stuff. So this whole stopping, recessions from happening which they've really taken on as their central mandate we can't let down ever happen is actually unnatural and it's counterproductive and i think that's part of why they're afraid of allowing a forest fire to start in our in a deflationary sense is because well it'll be a crown fire this time so much dead wood is built up right 18 percent of u.s companies are zombie companies they can't meet their debt payments from operating income that's right you know what happens, you know, can we let that many companies go out of business? Well, you better because they're not doing anything really, you know? Yeah, so. we should. And, and it goes back to that analogy between control burns versus no control burns whatsoever. Recessions are control burns if we allow them to happen. And, mm -hmm. uh, but now we're in a situation where they, they put this off so long. They put so much effort into kicking the can down the road like you said, 18% of the companies that are out there, that's not counting the ones that are borderline as well. So when if this fire starts, it's going to get out of control and dramatically upend the underlying economic cycle. And to kind of yep. go back to that, to one more chart that was in uh, Hussman's pre uh, uh, market comment, he goes and points out the index of leading economic indicators. And I forget that my mouse doesn't show over here, but if you go back and take a look at, at 2023, so this is the 12 month percent change and the six month smooth, smoothing of annualized three month percent change. Just trying to take a little bit of the noise out of these leading economic indicators from the uh, conference board. You know, he mm -hmm. points out and he states in there, this is the lowest level that we've seen going back to 1960 without a recession. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, I mean, that just shows now, I guess it's possible this is the point of which we, we typically turn, especially 2000, you know, 1990 when we had that in there. So, uh, but 
you know, it looks like, especially on the six month, that it's trying to turn back down again here in 2023. So, uh, you know, this is still a, a, a tedious environment. My question is, is, you know, are we going to get down the road and look back and go, oh, we're going to revise the data? Actually, yeah, we were in a recession, but we printed enough money to get out. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. it's just a hard environment for investors to navigate. Well, it sure it sure is. So, um, hey, we're going to have to call it there for today. But Paul, um, thank you so much for your time again today. Anybody who wants to get a, a, an analysis, a free financial analysis, a plan even from Paul and his team, please go to peakfinancialinvesting.com. Fill out a very simple form. Somebody from Paul's team will get in touch with you and um, help you make sense of this nonsense. So Paul, thank you so much for doing that and really valuable service you provide. Just love working with you and uh, getting your insights here today. It's my honor, Chris. It really is. Hello, Chris Martinson. I'm the CEO of Peak Prosperity and also Peak Financial Investing. And after watching that, you're probably wondering, well, what do I do with my money? Look, you both deserve and need somebody who can talk to you about what's really going on in this world, understand the situation as it is, not be steering you towards certain things that don't make sense for you or just keep you in a game that's already ended. Look, if you want to talk to somebody about the petrodollar declining or what is happening with gold or which sectors are actually the best ones to be in, given what the Federal Reserve is up to or the federal government, you deserve to talk to somebody who can answer those and has a few gray hairs and has been there through some of the economic cycles because, hey, we're in another economic cycle, so it's good to have that experience. Fortunately, at Peak Financial Investing, what we do is we go out and we scour and we look for the very best firms out there who satisfy one thing above all else. They've got great experience coupled to great customer service. So if you want to come by peakfinancialinvesting.com, there's a very simple form you can fill out. Just a few fields. You hit send. What happens is an email gets triggered out. It goes to uh, an endorsed firm of ours. You will get an email back. You can then set up a phone call for a 30 to 45 minute free, no obligation, no pressure call to find out if this firm is a good fit for you and to find out if you're a good fit for the firm. It has to go both ways. And if all that matches up, this will be one of the best things that could happen to you this year. So please come by peakfinancialinvesting.com. Very simple process. We would love to help you if we can. Thanks very much.